far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and i love that old cross where the dearest and best Colossians 1, the 12th through the 14th verses. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Made us meet means he's qualified us, or it's right. 
who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. I'd like to ask you, what does darkness signify to you? And it should signify to you a lack of understanding. When you explain something they don't understand, understand they often say, I'm still in the dark. Well, if darkness is a lack of understanding, then what is light? It's understanding. So, so he says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Kingdom is a form of moral government. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I would like to call your attention something that has, I think has caused a lot of degradation, a lot of false doctrine to be preached in this world concerning this great subject. And it stems from not knowing the difference in how to interpret an allegory from a metaphor. After all, Jesus used over 12 different methods of teaching us. I'll not go into all of them, but I'll just mention a few that Jesus taught by allegory. He taught by parable. He taught by proverb. He taught by metaphor. He taught by miracle. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, he was teaching something. Every miracle in Jesus' day that he performed had significance then and has an application yet even to this day. He taught by example, the greatest way to teach. He taught by hyperbole, that's even by exaggeration. When he said, if your right eye offend thee, cut it off. If your right hand offend thee, cut it off. That's not to be taken literal. He taught by satire, if you can imagine that. Jesus really did teach by satire. Well, in this particular portion here, I'd like to show you they mix this or confuse it with an allegory. I'd like to define an allegory, how it's be translated or interpreted, rather. Also a metaphor. An allegory is a created story intended to convey a spiritual truth and can be interpreted in a literal, physical way. There are not very many allegories in the New Testament. And Paul, he allegorizes many stories of the Old Testament. By that I mean he uses them as illustrations. Not that those stories in the Old Testament, such as Joseph, David and many more. They're not allegories because an allegory is a created story. They, those are honest to goodness stories that really were in history or in a definite period of time. All right, now metaphor. A metaphor is an actuality, something that did or does exist and is intended to convey a spiritual truth, but cannot be interpreted in a literal, physical way. I have known of Jesus to use three metaphors in one short sentence when he said to the woman from Tyre and Sidon about the, is the bread 
to be given to the dogs, the bread of the children to be given to the dogs. Matthew 15. Bread there is to give us the idea of the word of God. That's the bread of life that cometh down from heaven. Dogs are unbelievers, and the children are the children of faith. But you see, there really were those things and still are to this day. Now look at this. It's, this text says, We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. One time a man came to my office and wanted me to hire a fellow that worked for him that had been arrested or fired from his position for stealing. And this man was a very tall, handsome man. I said, what kind of work do you do? And he said, I'm a security guard. Now here's the security guard, they called him stealing. Well, I ran a corporation one day that one time we had a security guard try to burn the place down. He even tried twice because they get rewarded if they get somebody stealing or trying to burn your place down. So all you had to do was discover the fire and he would get a reward. And he, twice he set our plant on fire. That's why the comedians often say, you need night watchmen to watch a night watchman. So I said to this man that had brought him to me, who claimed to be a Christian, I'm certain he was, I said to him, you want me to hire this man who's been fired for stealing? I almost asked him, what do you think I'm running here, a reform school? But I didn't. But I said to him, could I ask you a question? Now, if anyone should ever know the answer to this question, he should have. But it's no wonder to me one of his flock there had gotten into trouble. I said, does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse from sin literally or figuratively? You know what he said to me? He said, Mr. Khan, I don't know the difference. Now, how would you like to have a person like that to be the shepherd and the bishop of your soul? And it wasn't much wonder to me this man had gotten such a bind and such a scrape. But by the way, we have thousands of people teaching the Bible in our great country that don't know the difference in interpreting a metaphor from an allegory. They will treat a metaphor like they would an allegory. They'll interpret an allegory like they would a metaphor. And what we wind up is with a religious mulligan stew that won't help anybody and give everybody a religious indigestion. Now, to ever to purport to teach the Word of God, it's a very, very serious thing. That's why novices should not be teaching the Word of God. One of the things I agree with St. Augustine is, he said, the Bible is not to be interpreted by the proud nor by children. 
And there's a lot to that statement there. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. See, his blood is a symbol or a figure of meaning his life. And Jesus gave his life for us. Yet I know people, when they're going to do something, they say they get down and plead the blood. Well, that's just religious superstition. That's all it is. It's really not knowing what they're talking about. And we have enough religious superstition as it is running around. Because the life is in the blood, isn't it? And that's, it's that, nothing more, nothing less. Otherwise, we get redemption through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cruel cross because he met the requirements that our great and just and holy God put there for him to have a method of forgiving us our sin, transforming us by his grace. But now the first thing I'd like to mention to you as we get into this is this subject. This fact, when Jesus died upon the cross, it did not render our great God merciful. It didn't make him merciful. It was an expression of his mercy. My Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. Not that he paid, that he gave. Or was paid. No, he wasn't. God so loved the world that he gave. And when I'm home and I'm driving to my office, almost without fail, I will quote the 103rd Psalm when there's not people driving beside me. I don't want people to think I'm talking to myself. But I will quote the 103rd Psalm, and I get very blessed when I come to that verse. It says, Thou, Lord, art merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, so when Jesus died on the cross, that did not render our Heavenly Father merciful. It was an expression of his mercy. An expression of his mercy. So then, in this great vicarious sacrifice, to whom was it made? Well, we'll look into that later. What end does it accomplish in a system of religion? Why is not such a device found in human government? And it isn't. No government ever comes and asks you to go die for someone that's guilty of murder. And by the way, that wouldn't do anything anyway. Might let the other person off to go out and do it again. But it just isn't found in human government. But also, when Jesus died, how did it affect our Heavenly Father, or the Divine Governor? It certainly didn't make him more merciful. But what it did, it gave him reasons then, in his administration of his moral government, that he could extend mercy to the man that would admit his guilt confess his sins, repent of them, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his finished work on Calvary, and seek him with all his heart, and he'd be born of the Spirit of God because Jesus died as a governmental expediency. 
so that just God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now, how does it make the pardon of sinners more proper than it would otherwise? What was there to prevent the exercise of mercy on the part of God, which had been removed by the atonement? How is a pardon more consistent now that the atonement has been made than it otherwise would have been? Now, we're going to look into these in this particular hour. But I'd like to bring an illustration here that now here's God not as a creator of heaven and earth, not the fatherhood of God's stuff, but this is God as a moral governor of the universe. Now, as a creator of the world and the father of creation, there may be things that he'd like to do, but he cannot do because of this relationship to us and his office of moral governor of the universe. Now, let me give you a very, very good example of this. I have a wonderful daughter. Her name is Faith, who did quite a bit of work with Youth with the Mission and with Agape Force. Now married, has two children, a wonderful little girl named after my wife. In the summer, she wanted to work if she wasn't out doing missionary work somewhere. Bless her heart, my daughter's missionary work many times was going to Bible camps and cleaning toilets while I was president of a good-sized corporation. But God resisteth the proud, but they giveth grace to the lowly. That's why my daughter Faith has great comprehension of the scriptures. She would go to California with the agape force, go up to doors, knock on those doors. Very wealthy people, lavish homes, and say, we're not begging money, but we are looking for housework to do. And could we clean your bathroom? <laughs> could they? Some of them hadn't been cleaned for a long time. We'd clean your kitchen. We'll get on your hands and knees. We don't have any particular amount to charge you. You just give, after we're finished, out of the goodness of your heart, and we'll be tickled to find it. We'll use it in our missionary work. My daughter would get down on her hands and knees, clean bathrooms, scrape kitchen floors that hadn't been <laughs> cleaned for a long time. Just because the house is big and beautiful, don't ever think the housekeeping has been so great. I've been in them where you almost need to plow <laughs> to get from room to room. She was working with this lad who was Episcopalian lad, had never been away from home, had never done any Christian service anywhere, and she just about felt like she had to take him to raise. He's much younger and really didn't know much about Christian service. I'm afraid most of Christian people don't really know much about Christian service because they think God's pyramid is like this, but it isn't, it's like this. If any of you would be great, let him become the least. So they're in this big home, and they're cleaning it, and they're singing. They're singing as they work. Well, after they finished, 
This particular man paid them very well. They later turned all that money in to this missionary organization. As they went down the walk, joyfully, they'd serve somebody, help them, and got a nice donation for a mission. He called my daughter Faithy, because he'd heard the lad call her Faithy. Faithy, would you come in here? Would you come back, please? She went back, said, yes, sir. Did I forget something? He said, no, but I heard you kids singing, singing about the Lord Jesus. Would you tell me about the Lord Jesus? You talk about being a Christian. Say, how do you become a Christian? See what that daughter of mine did? She earned the right to be heard. She earned the right, and she said to this young Episcopalian boy, we want to do a very, very good job because God's reputation is at stake here because <laughs> we're out representing him. Like the very fine resort up in New England. Had the most wonderful waitresses, very polite, and people just couldn't get over it. What made them such wonderful waitresses? They all were well-trained. They didn't come carrying glasses with their hands on top of it like that. They put them down there where they had those ridges. To <laughs> you always notice how few people know how to carry a glass of water in it. <laughs> Just notice that sometime. Well, one time a man said to this, owner that how did you get all these waitresses to be so good and cheerful and do such a good job? He said, I'll tell you how, come with me. He went through the kitchen doors, which they'd come in, swinging doors, over here to go through, and other ones come in, come in. Come in here, and he said, I looked there, and just before they went out the doors, here was a sign that said, signed by the owner, my reputation is in your hands. My reputation is in your hands. And Christian workers and friends, God's reputation is in our hands. And by the way, his hands are in the hands of the Lord Jesus when Jesus came. And he said, I always do that which pleases my Father, doesn't he? Now, and he also said, as my Father sent me, so send I you. So shouldn't we go with Jesus' reputation in our hands and do a good job? And everything that we do, whatsoever we do, we should do unto the glory of God. Now, this daughter, one summer, instead of going out to work like this, she wanted to come down to our offices. And we probably had close to 50 women working there. She wanted to work in the office. Now, I said, uh, I'll turn you over to the person who has charge of that, and that'll be up to him. And he hired her, and she worked in the office. And she was a very, very good worker, and gave all that money she made that summer to missionaries. I loved that in her. I'm so proud of my girl sometime, I know it gets to be maybe boresome to some of you people. But let's say now, when she was at home, and at one time, we had a porch just like I'm going to tell you. When she was about seven or eight years of age, I said to her, Faithy, would you go out there and sweep the leaves off the front porch for your mother? She said, yes, Daddy. Now, mind you, she's only seven or eight years old. She went and got a broom. Now, mind you, that 
porch was about that square. Now that's not exactly a hard, rigid, burdensome, painful job. Just sweep the leaves off of a concrete porch. I asked her to do it. She went to the garage and she got out a broom and she began to sweep to give it these leaves that made about two or three passes. And the girl next door named Cindy said, come on, Faithy, let's go roller skating. Well, they're only eight. So she drops a broom and she goes out to the garage, puts on a roller skate, and they skate around for about an hour and they get tired of that. So she takes her skates off and leaves them out there in the garage where daddy can step on them. <laughs> and she said, oh, I forgot mommy told me to sweep the front porch. She went back and she got the broom. She'd give her a couple more swipes with that broom and another kid went by and said, Faith, yes, ride her bikes. So she dropped the broom. They rode their bikes in that neighborhood of ours which didn't have fast cars and maniacs driving through it. They rode for about an hour. They got tired, of course. And she left the bike right in the driveway where daddy could run over it. She always made things like that very easy for me. <laughs> she thought then, oh, I was supposed to sweep off the porch. So she goes up now, and one minute she finishes that great big two-minute job we'd given her. <laughs> now, we never bawled her out. We didn't say anything harsh to her. She's seven or eight years old. What do you expect out of an eight-year-old girl or seven years of age? But let me tell you, when she was 18 years of age, and she came to work in the office at the W.A. Whitney Corporation, they gave her certain duties. And by the way, she just did wonderful. I was very proud of her. But indulge me for a minute in an illustration here. What if when they gave her a two-hour job to do at the corporation offices, she took two days to do it? Or what if they give her a two-minute job like her mother had done, and she takes two hours to do it, and I was the president of the corporation, and that's my daughter taking two hours to do a two-minute job. At home, I may be her father, but at the corporation, now what do you think I am? I'm the chief executive officer of the company, and I must treat my daughter like everybody else, no favorites. I know when I used to work in my dad's plant, being his son meant I had to do twice as much work as anyone else, and I got one half as much money. <laughs> now, let's say my daughter only takes, uh, well, she does take two hours to do a two-minute job in our office and does that continually. I say she does it. Well, her supervisor goes to her boss, and pretty soon somebody reaches that vice president of finance who was over that. And he comes to me, and he says, Now, Harry, your daughter is taking two hours around here to do a two-minute job, and if she can keep on doing that, the other workers in this office can take two hours to do two minutes worth of work. 
Now we've got to do something about this or that or you're not a real boss the way you ought to be. You shouldn't have any favorites. Isn't that correct? Now what I'm trying to say to you, my relationship to my daughter Faithy in the office was altogether different than it was at home on our front porch. Now God, as a creator of the universe, a loving heavenly father, things that he may want to do that when men start hurting one another, stealing, robbing, committing adultery, all these kind of sins, let me tell you, he's then the moral governor of the universe. And he's got a wonderful law that he must uphold. And he must not play any favorites. And when a law is broken, there are sanctions that must be exerted or penalties that must be applied. Now, I think he can be just as loving, just as loving as the created universe, and just as loving as when he is a moral governor of the universe. I'll tell you why, because I believe and believe with all my heart. Justice is an attribute of love. As I have said to you before, I had a godly mother that spanked me. I don't mean she gave me a beating. She spanked me. You know why she spanked me? Because I had it coming. Because I'd been disobedient and I did something to hurt my brothers and sisters. And she had to have the best interest of everybody in that family at heart, didn't she? So she gave Harry Kahn what Patty gave the drum, I can tell you that. And I had it coming. Now, that was love. But by the way, what if my, one of my other daughters, my Nancy that you hear singing, Nancy Kahn Anderson, when she was four years of age, what were you thought of in the living room? She takes the Sunday funny paper over in the corner and she tears it up and she takes a match and she lights a fire over in the corner of the living room. She gets a nice one going. I go over there and I stamp it out. I say, Nancy, don't you do that anymore. What kind of a dad would I be if I didn't stamp it out, or what kind of a neighbor would I be, because I burned their house down too, not only mine, those on both sides. Isn't it strange when God wants to intervene, and he does intervene by divine intervention to take care of some of these sins, they think he's unloving and unkind. No, that's the same God that made the heavens and the earth, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but as a moral governor of the universe. Wouldn't I be a terrible dad if I didn't insist my daughter repent of setting fire? She must stop. She must change her mind. She must have her mind enlightened how dangerous that is to the family, to what little we own, and to what our neighbors own. See, as a father, I have that as a responsibility, don't I? Well, I don't think I'm being such a bad man when I do that. So my relationship with my children is like that. So, but wait a minute. In the world, and in forensic courts of our land, if everybody that is brought up before a judge and pleads guilty and asks for mercy, and you show mercy to everybody, to every lawbreaker, what happens to your system of law? Well, it begins to cave in, to collapse. 
Now, God expects us to love his law, so he must love it too, and that means to maintain it, and he does. So, in the atonement, it is supposed that Christ has done as much to maintain the honor of the law as would have been done had it been personally obeyed by all who will be saved by him. And he has done as much to that honor as would have been done had the penalty been literally borne by, by all for whom he died. But he bore the penalty to uphold the law so God could be merciful to us, forgive us our sin, subdue our rebellious heart by this great demonstration of love so that the cross of Jesus Christ might become a roadblock in our life to future sin, make our reformation and future con conduct assured because he's the lover of our soul and he's died for us. Is, is there anything wrong with that, friend? I say not. So, we have seen in the human administration law one great difficulty, no way of pardon, is that there is no security for the reformation and future good conduct of him who is pardoned, but that if an influence could be connected with the instrument of pardon, which would secure this, this would remedy the difficulty. Now, this is contemplated in the atonement. It will secure this effect, that in the gift of the Savior, in his character, in his love, his sufferings in our behalf, the manifestation of love by the fact that those sufferings were endured in our behalf, as it fitted most deeply to appeal to this rebellious heart of ours so that we might begin to do, we might begin to live just the way he originally created us to live and that our heart would be subdued and that we would then be what we ought to be. It is not the law that reforms, it's love, it's compassion, it's kindness. So therefore, my friends, yes, he had a governmental reason for having him die to uphold his moral government, but also a great moral influence. Not as the Socinians would say, because they make his death only to be a moral influence. No, that's part of it. The death for the governmental part, And this other is to subdue our rebellious heart so that we will not even do that and even be concerned that. So, as I said, three times Jesus could have said one word. That's all, just one word. Would not have had to go to Calvary, but he came here to go to Calvary. He came here to go to Calvary. So Christ's trial was unique. It wasn't for his conduct. It was for his identity. It was for who he said he was. He said, I and the Father are one. I didn't mean a Siamese twins. They're one in harmony, one in unity. 
one in agreement, one in purpose, one in manner of life. Because he that has seen me has seen the Father, and if the Father had been here instead of Jesus, he would have acted and reacted just the way that Jesus acted. So, someday we'll all have a trial. There's going to be a judgment seat of Christ. Or the great white throne judgment. We're going to appear at one or the other. But the Bible says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That means in a right relationship with him. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. After the flesh means to live to gratify the five senses. And that can simply be, my friends, if you're a wealthy person and care not for the poor or for your Christian obligation, all you have to do is ride around the world, rest your life in big luxury liners, and you're gratifying the flesh. But you're just doing it in a higher cultural level than the poor drunk in the gutter is. But you're both living to gratify the flesh. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now you'll find that in Romans 7. And some of the newer translations have taken out that second part, which I said, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But they move it down to the third or fourth verse. But it's still there. Who walk not after the flesh, who walk not to gratify our old selfishness, which is the reason we sinned anyway, isn't it? Every sin we have ever committed was to gratify a selfish heart. And Jesus said, if any man can come after me, let him, what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. For whosoever shall save his life that means whosoever will just live for pleasure in this life. In fact, as Paul says, the woman liveth just for pleasure is dead while she liveth. That means separated from God while she liveth. But we should not live to gratify the flesh, but the things of the spirit. And they're eternal, and that's what we are created for. So his trial was unique. Will ours be unique? His was for his identity of saying <laughs> he had known the Father before Abraham was, I was. Oh, did that set him off. Did that set him off. Well, what will ours be? I would ask you a question. Who are you going to be identified with? I know people, when I think of them, I think of the Green Bay Packers because that's all they think about. I've worked in places when the Green Bay Packers lost a football game, half the people in the office went and cut out the headlines, pasted this guy's desk. Now, we, uh, I've been in offices where men, they worship the Chicago Bears. Boy, they're sure down the dumps these days, I can tell you. <laughs> I've even gone to churches where the deacons went to the pastor and told him, you're preaching too long. We missed the first quarter of the Bears football game. They can thank their lucky stars I'm not their pastor. 
I'd tell them, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Hey, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. Listen, dear friends, I'm not saying the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys and, and the Chicago Bears, that's sinful. It is sinful when that's more of interest to you than the word of God, and you'd, you'd take God's time away from him just so you can hear more of a miserable football game. You won't be able to remember who played two weeks from now or who won tomorrow. And that cannot only be said to football. It can be said to baseball. I dare say half the people in this room right here could not tell me who played in the World Series a year ago. Many of you wouldn't know who played in this past one when they had the earthquake just before. But I'll tell you, that was sure the God of San Francisco and the Bay Area, wasn't it? Oh, friends. Baseball isn't bad, but when baseball is what you live for, that's your God. That's your idol. And I'll tell you, your heart deserves a better God than baseball or football or a nice new car or a mink coat, ladies, or a big house. But because you were made to be a God-centered creature, not a self-centered creature, but until Jesus Christ is supreme in your life and you realize that he died for you because he loved you, but because you needed to be forgiven in the moral government of God, that there need to be a substitute penalty there. So Jesus, he died, we should have died. Jesus suffered, but it was a substitute of suffering. Ordinarily, the person that dies without Christ will go to hell and suffer forever. The main thing you'll suffer is being separated from God and being in outer darkness. That's the main thing you will. But God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. It was never made for man. But it's made for rebellious angels and men that don't want to treat their fellow man right that don't want to live intelligently or rightfully, but just want to live to gratify the senses. So, what will it be? So I hope, in looking into this, that you're not only interested in that which will take care of the penalty of the sin, but also the power of sin in human life. You know, you become like that which you worship, you become like that. I knew a black man in the city of Chicago named Raymond Lilly. You might not believe there's a God, but all you had to do is follow him one day and you'd know there's a God. Because his disinterested life of love, disinterested means no selfish interest. He was loving people, not to get to heaven, but because of their value, they're made in the image of God, and that makes them valuable. And he would take these old people in Cook County Hospital and cut their toenails and wash their feet. And if the men didn't have the money for a haircut, he would cut their hair. He would minister to them in a hundred different ways. And when you looked at Raymond Lilly, these big lights are so blinding here, I'll tell you, 
He had a face that glowed in the dark. Now, there's been many things about this atonement that just simply doesn't seem to appeal to some people. And I think the main reason is it hasn't been explained to them, but neither have they seen how important it is. Now, when Jesus said, if any man come after me, not most men, not the holy man, if any man come after me, and this is a part of preaching the gospel. He isn't saying, if you come after me, you're going to be prosperous, you're going to make a lot of money. No, he's saying, if you come after me, you count the cost. And some of you men, you may lose your family over it. Maybe your wife will want to put you away as a religious fanatic. Because now you don't live for self. I knew of a, of a woman, didn't know her personally, but she wanted God to save her husband. She's a church person. He drank and he ran around. She got him to go to church a few times, and he heard the gospel, and he was saved by the grace of God, came to love Jesus Christ and obey him. And he began to give his money to the church and his money to the poor and his money to foreign missions. He just gave and gave and gave where she couldn't buy new fur coats all the time. And she couldn't buy a new dress for each Sunday. You know what she said? Oh, God, I want you to save him, but not that much. <laughs> Say, listen, friends. We must make an unconditional surrender to God. We don't go to God and make deals with God. We're lost. We're undone. We're doomed. We're hell-bound. We're hell-deserving. And about all we can do is throw down our, repen our weapons of rebellion and ask God to have mercy upon us, for he will abundantly pardon if we'll have a change of opinion, a change of direction, that we'll start living for him and living for one another and come to the cross. Now, what do you think he says, take up your cross? Let me tell you why. Cross of Christ is not a place where he invites you to come and live. He invites you to come and die. It's a life of death to your old selfishness and self-centeredness and egotistical manner and purpose of life. But no, nowadays we're trying to make, put it on our selfish life and make God a part of our agenda to gratify ourselves. And he will not do that. He will not do that. That's the new cross. I'm talking about the old cross. The old cross was a place of shame. And if you're going to come to the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you, you're going to get your share of the shame. Because the offense of the cross has not changed. I know, when my mother came to Christ, I'll tell you, she really took it for the gospel's sake. And I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you if you come to the cross of Christ, I'm not inviting you for any picnic, but I am inviting you to find forgiveness of sins and joy and peace. And somebody will go with you through the battles of life. A great theologian died 
in the Chicago area, August 16th, 1989. I'm very thankful for things that man taught me. I'm speaking of Gordon Olson. I think the leading theologian of this century. I'm sure in 25 years, a church will discover him. Among the many fine things he taught me was this. He said, Harry, anything we have to deny ourselves for and give up for the blessed gospel's sake, no matter what it is, in the light of eternity, it will be as nothing. It will be as nothing. As I looked back when I was in New York City and converted to Christ, and I thought of the things I was going to have to give up, I can't even remember. <laughs> I can tell you, I gave them up. I can't remember what it was. There were a lot of things like that. There was trappings that I had on me. By trappings, I mean things that I had acquired by making money. And uh, nothing wrong with that if you use it the right way, but I had not been using it the right way. So Jesus, my friends, invites you to the cross. Come. But he doesn't invite you to come and live. He invites you to come and die. But in dying, you live. Because except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. Not long before I met the Lord in New York City. There was a young lady that was a very, very successful artist there. I mean, very highly paid. A lovely, beautiful woman, I always thought. She was over in Astoria, Long Island, one Saturday night. She heard a couple friends of mine over there trying to hold a street meeting to proclaim the riches of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, and the stupidity of sin, but the wonderful cross of Christ that they could be forgiven. She was a dissident Catholic delving into Rosicrucianism. And she heard these two laymen do their best to try to turn people from sin unto righteousness. And that night, right there on the curb in Astoria, Long Island, which is, by the way, that's not exactly great neck, in case you don't know it. <laughs> she didn't have to live in a place like that. Perhaps she was only visiting there. I never did ask her. But I'll tell you, that young lady passed from death unto life that night on the street corner. From death unto life. Because the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Is that right? She was dead in trespasses and sins. But she heard the wonderful words of life from these fellows. And she asked them more questions. And they talked to her a long while. And finally, she bowed her heart to Jesus Christ out there. Asked her in Long Island. She went to work on Monday, and she resigned her position. I'll tell you, it was a lot of money she made. You know what she did? She enrolled at the same school I was trying to learn the Bible in. I said, try I wasn't intending to become a preacher. I just wanted to know the Bible and try to please God better, maybe help somebody, help myself also. She graduated from the school. She already had a degree in art, 
Then she went out to Norman, Oklahoma, graduated from a Summer Institute of Linguistics. Then went to a place called Chico, California, boot camp for missionaries where you learn to live in the jungles. You learn how to do it. You take five gallon lard cans with you. You take your food and bury it down the ground about four feet. And about once a week, you dig, dig up and take something out of there. She told me one day, she said, Brother Harry, the only thing I need money for, listen to this, is powdered milk, paper, pencils, and paddlers. <laughs> These are men that paddler canoes. See, she fell in the ground in New York City and died. She died her old way of life. You may not know I'm talking about. I'm talking about Sophie Muller. She was arrested down there. I don't know how many times. And they'd start taking her down the river. And I won't tell you who, who arrested her because they were clergymen. They were not policemen. And they started down the river and here would come about 200 canoes out the river with these fellows, great big long spears that say, now what was you going to do with Sophie? <laughs> what was you going to do with her? And they had her transfer canoes right now. She was at our house. At that time, she only had 500 churches going. That's all. You look back down there on the map where Venezuela, Colombia, way over there in Brazil is in that area there. That's how far back in there she'd gone. She went into places at our point four program, which is a part of, I think, of the United Nations, where if they sent men in there to help those natives, they never came out. They were eaten. And Sophie was never afraid. She saw snakes back in there this big around. She saw lots of them back in there. She wasn't afraid of them. You know why? Spirit of God had taken away that kind of a fear from her. They that know their God shall be mighty and do mighty exploits. That young lady had been to the cross. The old Sophie was afraid of snakes. The new Sophie was not afraid of snakes. So all she needed, her money for him. By the way, she came up with books, most beautiful artwork in them. I used to buy them and give them away to people, try to get them interested in, in missions. Most beautiful artwork of missionary work you have ever seen. She'd get money, make lots of money. You know what she did with it? She gave it to other missionaries that couldn't get support. There was another one who worked with her. I don't mean right there, but was just as successful as she was when he didn't have near the length of time to serve our Lord because she'd had to have a leg cut off and she went to the field with a wooden leg and when MIT sent Ace Bess up 
the Orinoco River to find the headwaters of the Orinoco. They didn't know where it was. They'd sent expeditions up there and they'd never come out, never <laughs> anything about they, This poor fellow at MIT didn't know any better. He took the job. And he went up there. He found the headwaters of the Orinoco and he planks himself down like Vasco da Gama. And he thought he had really found it. He heard some singing, which is something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. And he kept walking and walking toward that song, and he got over there. Here was Granny Troxel with her wooden leg and 250 converts singing praises to the lamb that was slain because of the moral disintegration of the world. You think the atonement doesn't work? Yes, it does. When men will sit down with serious reflection, I mean real concentration of your mind on these things I've been talking about, how we came here and we're separated from God, we sinned against God, we sinned against almost everybody, but God didn't forget us. He commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus came and died for us. We should have made the first move for reconciliation, but God did it in sending his own son in the form of flesh that we might be not only forgiven but redeemed, not only forgiven but transformed by his grace so then that we could love in a right relationship with him I think the hymn writers had a right when this one wrote, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die for me, I scarce can take it in. You know the hymn? I should say, and there's another one that says something like this, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. And there's another hymn writer that knew this and knew it very, very well when it was written. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all, in gratitude, not to get to heaven, but in gratitude and love for Heavenly Father with such a great plan of redemption and his son and his blessed spirit.